In Romans chapter 5, I just want to begin uh, a three-week series on the journey with Jesus Christ, and you'll see that in your bulletin. The, and I'd like to approach it from a different perspective, because in the past we've had, um, we've had the perspective of historical events, what's happening historically with Christ over the period of time up until the time he is crucified and he rises again. And I'd like to look at just some of the messages that he was preaching the last three weeks that before he died. And you know, the last words of any person are very important because they really signify the, um, the culmination of their life and their message. And uh, three weeks, just about three weeks before Jesus um, is crucified and rises from the dead, he sets out on the road to Jerusalem, and he's starting off in Galilee. And he has to go from Galilee down through Samaria down to Jerusalem. And as he's going, uh, some events we're familiar with and some events we may not be. But as Jesus sets off, he's setting off, in this, and the scene here is in Mark chapter 10, which we'll look at in a minute. But he begins his journey to Jerusalem, and the message that he's speaking is really the cost of discipleship and the necessity for him to die. And that is really bad news for the disciples. The disciples are very upset at this news, even though they've been told before. And we see that even up to the time when he is crucified, the disciples are still kind of in the dark about what's going on in the plan of God. They really don't know what's happening until he rises from the dead and he reminds them, I told you that I was going to be delivered up to be crucified in Jerusalem. And so that often happens in the plan of God, doesn't it? God speaks to us and we don't get it until after the fact and we're like, oh, <laughs> that's what God meant. And God, that's what the Holy Spirit does in John chapter 14. He renews us and he reminds us of what God has said to us about the plan. And so here Jesus is starting off on the road to Jerusalem. And I just want to preface this message here with reading uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. I love this verse because it's a, such a mystery to me how so many churches in America miss the main point of the Bible, of the New Testament, which is really the grace message and the finished work. And what happens is, is that today we live in a society where it's very business-oriented, very oriented to self-improvement, self-embetterment, and really it, it actually has become almost another gospel where people... Uh, feel the sense of sin because of the law that's been brought in. People are aware of the law. It says that in Romans chapter 5 that the Gentiles are, do not have the law because the law was given to the Jews, but they are a law unto themselves, meaning that in our conscience there's a sense of the law. We've taught on this before uh, in, in a few weeks ago, that in every one of us is a sense of a law that these laws can be either the moral law of Moses or it could also be the law of what, the way life should be for me as a father or 
as a uh, career person or as a mother or how I should be with my friends. And these are laws that people adapt into their life because of the culture that we live in, the upbringing that we've received. Um, United States, we have many different cultures, and so we see many different types of social and cultural laws, don't we? And so the law can come into, the law comes into our minds and very often becomes, it can, if we're not careful and if we're not being renewed in the grace of God every day, which we just need to be renewed every day in the grace of God, we need to be quickened by the Holy Spirit and the spirit of, our, of the liberty in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we have in Christ. If we are not, then we begin to live in a law that is not the law of the love of God or the law of grace. We begin to live in a type of law that, well, we do this because we want to be, we want to be loved. And this is really what it boils down to, is that there are so many laws and conditions in the world that we live in that if you do this, you will feel loved, you will be accepted, you will sense value. And a lot of times the world will project love at us, but it says, I will love you or you will feel loved if you meet these standards. And these standards could be get a college education, uh, uh, be a beautiful woman, be a guy who's in shape, um, really have your act together with your kids, be a role model for your neighborhood. I mean, there's many, many different types of laws that people live in in your career um, you know, in the office, be on top of everything, be the best person in, in, the, uh, in the corporate scene. Many, many, many different kinds of laws. But here we see a man in, in Mark chapter 10. And, and remember, Jesus is start, just starting off on the road to Jerusalem. And this is one of the first things he tackles. He tackles the, the, whole, um, the, the whole point of the law. Jesus said in Romans chapter 10, that he came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. That was his purpose. Jesus preached very hard. He preached very often. And yet he fulfilled what he was preaching. Sometimes people will take the life of Christ and, and make that our, the model to live by. But they err in doing that because to, to, try to, to try to live exactly the way Jesus lived would be trying to do something that would be supernatural and impossible for people. Jesus came to fulfill the whole law. Well-meaning people and people that we have maybe heard, you know, this is not anything new, but this is a while back, they, there was a pretty popular slogan, what would Jesus do? And, I mean, that is sincere, but what would Jesus do? Well, what Jesus would do was he would live and love perfectly. And that's game over for us. <laughs> what would Jesus do in your marriage? Well, he would love your mate unconditionally. Well, wow, how are we doing with that? <laughs> you know, what would Jesus do in your, you know, at your work situation when you have a coworker that wants your job or your position? What would Jesus do? I don't know. I, I mean, he'd probably die for that person, but I don't think I would. And so the point here is that the life of Jesus is not about giving in a, in a new impossible law for people to live, but Jesus was coming to fulfill something so that we could be set free from trying to live up and measure up and, bear, and then bear fruit. And so Mark chapter 10, let's just read this, verse, verse 17 through 22. 
Now, now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, imagine the scene, Jesus is getting out on the road, this young guy starts running up and just kind of, does, you know, he just kind of lands on his knees and skids right up to Jesus, you know, imagine the scene there. And he says, Master, or he says, no, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Eternal life, what do I have to do to, to merit eternal life? Good master. And Jesus said, first of all, let's just get one thing straight. He says, why do you call me good? Now, why does Jesus say that? Because this young man's perspective of Jesus is, is good only from the moral perspective. You know, people have many different types of concepts of God, and that really hinders them actually from getting to know God. And that's why we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind to really see who God is. And so Jesus runs to, uh, so this young man runs to Jesus and he says, good master, meaning like I'm good and you're good. And so here we can have a conversation. And so Jesus said, there's only one good and that is God. You know the commandments. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says to the young man, you know the commandments, but really is this the answer to eternal life? Fulfilling the commandments gives us eternal life? No, that's absolutely not the message of the New Testament. So what is Jesus saying that, well, you know the commandments. What is Jesus saying to this young man who's looking for eternal life? It's kind of like if we had a young businessman that was, you know, that was living, that was, you know, just uh, one of these high achievers that uh, starts off with a good pocket of money, goes to a great school, and then Maybe he's in his 30s and he's just, he's doing great in life. He's like a young doctor and just making, making tons of money. But he's noticing that something's missing inside. And this is where a lot of people are at. And so he runs to Jesus and, he's, and he is talking to Jesus on the perspective of good and, um, and behavior. And so Jesus answers him on that level. He says, do you know the commandments? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And then he stops. He doesn't finish the rest of the commandments. And it's interesting that he doesn't do that. And there's been a lot of discussion about that. And I think one reason why is that, that these are the commandments that this man could not keep, at least on the mental level. And he answered unto him, he said, teacher, teacher, not savior, but teacher. All these things I have kept from my youth. Now you can see here the self-righteousness starting to come out. Like, yes, I've done this from my youth. I've achieved these things. And Jesus beholding him, loved him and said to him. And those are key words right there. We don't want to skip too quickly to what Jesus says. We want to stop and pause there for a minute. Jesus beholding him, loved him. Those are important words. And Jesus says, one thing thou lackest. What did this young man lack? He lacked an understanding of what was going on in that moment. Jesus looked at him and loved him. These are amazing, amazing look of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter got this look after he failed. Jesus looked at him from across the courtyard as he was being led off uh, when Peter said, I do not know this man three times. And then Peter, then Jesus gets led off uh, to, be, to be delivered to the magistrates for crucifixion. Jesus looks at Peter, and then Peter goes out and weeps. 
Why? Because he saw the eyes of Christ. He saw the love of Christ in those eyes. And you know, I think that beyond some great measure of chastisement or some cataclysmic thing happening in our lives, sometimes it just takes a look, doesn't it? A look from God when we know that we're before God in private and we're thinking about everything that went wrong and we are defending ourselves and preserving our life even when we realize that it's the wrong thing to do and then we realize that God's looking at us and He loves us. It's not the eye of condemnation. It's not the jaded eye of discouragement or great disappointment, but it's the eye of God's great love towards us. Jesus looks at this young man and He loves him. Imagine the thoughts that Jesus had towards this man. He thought, I'm going to go in about two, three weeks, I'm going to die on the cross for this guy. And you ever look at someone who is just missing the boat totally, and you look at them, and you don't really have a lot of words for them, but there's just this pity and compassion and love for them. That's what Jesus did here in a perfect way. He looked at him and he said, one thing you lack. And so what does he say, one thing you lack? What is the thing here that the rich young ruler is lacking? An understanding of the love of God. He's, un- he's not understanding love. He's only looking at the drive of achievement, the drive of excelling. I think that some of our personalities can very easily be high achievers where we become perfectionists uh, and religious perfectionists and maybe even perfectionists in whatever we do, but we, don't, we cannot even measure up to the standard that we put out for other people. And so Jesus says here, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it all to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean that's Jesus didn't say to Jesus didn't say to the young man, try harder. Try to get the rest of those commandments in. That's not what Jesus Jesus did not give this young man another self-improvement program. You know what, young man? Uh, this is what you can and you know that some commentators have said that this may have been Mark, John Mark. We don't know that for sure, but Jesus didn't say to him, look, okay, you're, you're, you're doing good, you're on your way, you're almost there. Let me just give you a few more pointers here. Of system. Here's a couple books to read. Here's a program I want you to get involved with, an embetterment program. And, you know, of course we do have to get trained. I'm not saying that for what we do in our career, but Jesus did not give him a moral program to become better. Jesus gave him the impossible. <laughs> the impossible and Jesus knew that this man, this was never going to work. And so why did he say this? Because this is what the law does. This is what the law does. The law puts you and I in such an impossible situation that the more we try, the greater the burden becomes. You know, there's three types of responses that we have or people have to the law. And I'm sure that you and I will find our place in here if you've grown up in any kind of a church in the past. Uh, three most common and, and instinctive um, ways that we try to respond and try to save ourselves when the law comes in. For example, uh, there have been people that we've met on outreach that say, you know, I, I tried to be a Christian and I, I, I just couldn't live up to it. I couldn't make it. There are Christians that are people for 30, for, for 30 years that are in these places where they just are finding themselves that they cannot make the measure. 
And so there's one of three ways that people usually respond. Number one, they put up a fight. You know, they understand that the judge is here and he's not going anywhere. And neither am I going to go anywhere. So I'm going to put up a fight. I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to defend my position. I'm right. And this is what I'm going to go at it. Actually, in the, in the last day when, when, uh, when at the white throne judgment, there will be people that will be appearing before God and they will actually try to persuade God that he was wrong and that they were right with all the good that they did. They will, some people will fight. You know, you put up, you know, you can see this if you have kids, you know, put down the standard and then there's the fight. It's like, but, and then there's the, there's the, the bucking to it. Because the old sin nature is a part of us that just will not surrender. The second, um, and you know what? Just like fighters, world's renowned fighters, punching an opponent that just will not give up, they end up bitter, bruised, and they find themselves alone. And this is what happens when we try to respond to the law. We just fight it. We're like, God... I'm not a bad person. What are you talking about? Don't you see all that I've done? And then the second way that people respond to it is they will run away or disappear. Just run, they'll just disappear. They'll, just, they, they'll come to a service maybe and they'll hear some kind of heavy pounding of the law and they're like, you know what? I, this, this is no place for me. And you'll never see them ever again. They'll just disappear. Um, and this may this may actually give a sense of relief for a while from the the external accusation that we feel either from church or from a family member but we're almost always disappointed to discover that our problems have followed us problems will follow us if we go somewhere else they're going to still be there and then the third and this is what most people do this is what most of us do when there is the law that's laid down, we try to appease by pleading and trying harder. You know, we find that no amount of hard work, good gestures, phone calls, or good works is ever enough. Appeasement, like people-pleasing, or is a despair-producing process. The more we try, the more we realize that we cannot measure up to what this person or what this law is demanding. If we're living in an environment or we are in a relationship that fear that feeds the fear of judgment with constant criticism, we deflate and detach because it becomes discouragingly exhausting trying to satisfy the demands and, and the appeasement from the judgment from another. How many know what I'm talking about? We We deflate and we just distance ourselves because we are not able to we're not able to meet the, meet the demand. So any kind of relationship that puts a demand on us creates eventually a detachment. And that kind of demand and judgment has, to, has really the power to kill all love. And so what is God's solution here? There's a fourth response. And I want to mention that in a minute. Um, there is... Sometimes this concept in a grace-preaching church, you know, which is a big word these days, since the 80s and the 90s, there's really been a grace movement in uh, Christianity in, in the United States. And some people have gotten the impression that a grace church 
is a church that lowers the bar. You know, that we lower the bar so that people can kind of... And, you know, maybe it would be easy for a pastor or for us to do that, to lower the bar so that people can kind of hop over easily and get in. But that's, that's tricky because what will happen actually is, is that a low view of the law always produces legalism. Now, what does that mean? If there's a low view of the law in a church, then that's actually going to produce another form of legalism, or it's going to produce another form of law. Let me explain what I mean. When a person comes to a church or comes to um, meet God, and they see that, that there is not the absolute impossibility to follow Christ, then what will happen is, is that they will, they will um, try to begin a process where they are uh, making up for what they're missing. I'll explain here what I mean. The law, well, we, we could call it cheap law. Cheap law weakens God's demands for per- perfection. Now, if Jesus said to the young man, okay, you know what? Well, here's a program. I want you to do this. If you can do this, then you can follow me. But you know what the problem is here? Is that the young man misses the whole point. What is God after in the young man? He is after one thing. He's after the young man's heart. Because there is something in that young man that is keeping him in bondage and in as a slave to his riches and his possession. What happened here was is that the young man, under the impression of achieving something in his life, understands that he's missing the core, the, the point of the matter, and that is eternal life. That is where the love, the joy, the peace that comes in through the fruit of the Spirit. And what will happen is, is that People enter into an achievement process, but they, they don't have that fulfillment. And so it's illustrated this way. There are, I just want to read this to you, that there were um, two men that were out duck hunting. And as they were out hunting for ducks, they were in a wide open barren piece of land in southeastern Georgia. Far away on the horizon, they noticed a cloud of smoke. Soon they could hear the sound of crackling. A wind came up, and he realized the terrible truth. A brush fire was advancing his way. It was moving so fast that he and his friends could not outrun it. The hunter began to rifle through some of his pockets, and he emptied all the contents of his knapsack. He soon found what he was looking for, a a book of matches. To his friend's amazement, he pulled out a match, and he struck it. He lit a small fire around the two of them, and soon they were standing in a circle of blackened earth. Waiting for the brush fire to come, they did not have to wait long. They covered their mouths with their handkerchiefs and braced themselves. The fire came near and then swept over them, but they were completely unhurt. They, were, they weren't even touched. Fire would not burn the place where the fire had already burned. The point here is that the law is like a brush fire that really takes no prisoners. And this is, the, this is the point. It cannot be escaped or extinguished or circumvented. If we try to live in standards that are outside of grace standards, then the demand is never going to be satisfied. We're always going to be finding ourselves not, not enough. Let me bring this down to a practical level. 
Uh, are you in a situation today where you find yourself more and more trying to appease a law or the moral law in your life so that you can sense value and acceptance in your life by a person or by God? The point of the illustration here is, is that the law is like a brush fire that takes no prisoners. It cannot be escaped or extinguished or circumvented. But if we stand in the burned over place where the law has already done its worst, we will not get hurt. Its power has not been nullified, nor has it, its necessity and authority been denied. Yet because while we were standing, not a hair of our heads will be singed. The death of Christ is the burned over place. And here's the thing, is that as soon as we agree with the law that I am not perfect, I am not able to measure up. When Jesus says, take up your cross, you know what my response is? God, I can't take up my cross. I need you to lead me into that place. Jesus says, pray without ceasing. When Jesus says these things, it's not for us to respond in the power of the flesh and say, I will do this. Remember this in the Old, Old Testament where Joshua said to the people, um, he's getting ready to lead them into the promised land and all the people of Israel say, we will serve the Lord. And what does Joshua say? You cannot serve the Lord. And why are we saying this? Is because I think that very often we find ourselves trying to, to do something that, um, I think this mic is going... Is that better? We find ourselves trying to do something to appease something in our conscience or someone else's standards. God accepts us. And when it, all, the, all, that, all the rich young ruler had to do, it was not to go out and sell everything he had and to take up his, up his cross and follow Christ. That was not the answer to that. The rich young ruler's response should have been, I cannot do that. <laughs> And that would have been great. And Jesus would have said, follow me. Why is that important? Because if I can say, if I can say, I will do all, the, all that the law says, then when, when the law comes, I'm going to be burnt. And I'm going to find myself unable to do it. And I'm going to find myself judged. But if I can take those matches and burn a circle around me, like those duck hunters did, and understand that the law has already judged me, that I am found wanting, that I am a sinner, that there's no hope for me, whoever I am. Try being a pastor or someone in a church, you know, and try to, you know, try that. That's, pr that's quite amazing. I think you have accusations coming at you from the atmosphere, you know. How can you preach to these people? You know, you're a sinner. You know, like, yeah, absolutely. I am a sinner saved by grace. And when we agree with the law, when we say, yes, I am a sinner, yes, I am unable to love my kids or my parents or my family the way, or I'm unable to do my job the way I'm supposed to do, when I say that, I say, yes, I agree with the law, but God loves me anyway. And this is where I want to close at, Romans chapter 11, that God has concluded all in unbelief that what? That he might what? Romans chapter 11, I believe it's verse 32. God has concluded all in unbelief so that what? He may what? Have mercy on all. It's not that God has concluded all in unbelief so that he could crucify and kill everybody and judge everybody by fire. 
and prove that everybody is, is, is a failure. That already has happened. God has concluded that are all in unbelief. You know, when you start something new in your life, starts a new, a new era in your life, or maybe you're already going down that road in your life, just keep remembering this, that I am not sufficient for these things. There's no way that, I could be, that, I, that we can continue walking on the water without the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing in our lives. Many of us, if not all of us, we're walking on water. <laughs> We've never done this stuff before. Have you? I don't know. Has anybody of you been where you're at now and you know exactly what's going on? We're walking on water, and the moment we start looking at the water, we're done. We start looking at, we start looking at uh, performing, we're done. All we have to do is it's, and agree with the law and, and say, yeah, I, am a, I am a sinner. And you know what will happen? If the, if, if the young, rich, rich young ruler could have seen, could have said that and say, Jesus, I can't do that. I am not sufficient and able to sell all that I have. I just can't do that. You know what Jesus would have done? He would have said, I love you. And that's the whole point of this story here as he starts off his way to Jerusalem. He says, I love you. He looked at him and he loved him. I think that moment, the rich young ruler would have understood that the love of Christ is greater than the riches that he owned. And he would have, he would have done, and then we see that, what do we see that we see not very far away from this portion of scripture, the story of Zacchaeus, don't we? Who was also a very rich, crooked guy. But he was the one who gave everything back. Maybe God is not asking. God didn't ask Zacchaeus to give everything away. Zacchaeus himself said, I will repay people four times. And so the point is, is that when we discover the love of God, something takes over in our life, and that's love. And, and I want to finish with this, is that if I do what I do in the church or in, in my life because it's required of me or expected of me, that can only last for a period of time before I run out of juice. We do, whatever we do, whether it's evangelism or preaching or whatever we do in the church or whatever measure of responsibility that I have in the church, it needs to be motivated by love towards God. We do what we do because God has been so gracious to us. He's been so kind to us and so amazing to us. That is more motivating than a carrot in front of a person or the requirements of the law. Uh, if someone says, you've got to go soul winning, because if you don't go soul winning, then you're, then you're not a good Christian. But that doesn't motivate me. What motivates me to soul win is, is that Jesus loved me to share the gospel with other people. I'm motivated to do that because God loves me. And, you know, I think that even taking up our cross can become a legalistic thing. Oh, i got to take up my cross. Well, you know what? None of us can carry a cross. Jesus carried it for us. And all we have to do in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 29, is yoke up with him and just get connected with him as he's taking the cross to, the, to, to Calvary. That is our job. And when we read something in the Bible and we say, impossible, that's the right response. And you know what Jesus says here? And I know I'm, talk, I'm speaking long here, but he says this in Mark chapter 10. Let me just read this. Look at the... So the, young, the rich young ruler walks away sorrowful because he had many things. And so what does Jesus say to that? Jesus says, uh, verse, 20, verse 23, And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches 
to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is not talking about rich people. He's talking about people that are connected to their riches, that exalt them more than the, the treasure of knowing God. In verse 24, the disciples were astonished at these words. <laughs> Can you imagine this? The disciples are astonished. Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And historically, that means that there were these special gates to the city that camels that were coming in from the Silk Road or for trade, these camels were really loaded with lots of bags and lots of goods and things. And they needed to unload everything off the camel. The camel needed to get on its knees and it needed to crawl through this needle gate. And this is what Jesus is talking about. That, that um, in verse 20, 26, they were greatly astonished saying among themselves, who then can be saved? They, they see the impossibility of salvation. They see, wow, if that's the case, then there's no hope for me. And that was the right response. I think when we look at impossibilities and we look at the requirements and expectations from us, our response is, that is impossible. And Jesus looked at them and said, with men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And I want to finish with that. that. You know what, if you look at your life and your Christianity and say, you know what, this area of my life is impossible. I'm doing great in all these other areas. These are the list of the commandments I can keep. But this one area of my I just can't give it up. I just can't separate. I can't lose it. And you know what, that is the response. We need to go to God and say, God, it's impossible. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. And those are the greatest words of surrender for any Christian to God. And when God, when God hears that, he says, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Why is it, why is it possible? Because Jesus is on his way to complete the work that needed to be completed for communion with, with God and with people that could receive the love of God. Are you getting what I'm saying? It's a lot of kind of, a lot of psychoanalysis here a little bit, a lot of information, but remember this one thing, that the illustration that it's better to surrender to the impossibility of the law and say, I can't do it, and then let God pour the mercy and the grace on than it is to try to outrun the fire that's moving across the field, isn't it? Because there's only one thing that God wants from us, and that's not our self-improvement programs. He just wants our heart in Proverbs 23, verse 26. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, God.